0: Today is June 5th, 2018, and my guest is Richard Reinsch II. He is the founding editor of the website Law and & Liberty and the host of the podcast Liberty Law Talk. Law and & Liberty and Liberty Law Talk are projects of Liberty Fund, foundation of, in Indianapolis, and uh, of which Econ Talk is supported by through the Library of Economics and Liberty. So Richard and I are um, cousins in some sense or something. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Talk about uh, – before we get – well, our topic for today is a recent essay of yours, Richard, that, where you reviewed Jonah Goldberg's book, The Suicide of the West, which Jonah was a guest recently on EconTalk to talk about the book. And I thought that essay might make a useful jumping-off point for a conversation on the Enlightenment, uh, the state of America, uh, the state of liberty. But I want to first let you tell our audience a little bit about, a little bit about Law & Liberty, the website and the podcast that you host, Liberty Law Talk. Well, thanks, Russ, for having me on
1: Econ Talk. Uh, you are the standard in terms of uh, serious interview formats uh, online, and so I've, when I started Liberty Law Talk, I you know, wanted to in some way uh, try and duplicate your success. I've uh, tried to. Uh, Follow uh, a lot of your interviewing style, and I also sort of crossed that with Brian Lamb, so I I (laughs) attempt to triangulate uh, my own style between the two of you. Um, But Law and Liberty, I started at the beginning of 2012, and it was sort of my thinking and position that a lot of arguments and rhetoric and ideas on the right in America were stale and uh, i don 't exempt uh, anyone from that, I think uh, judicial sphere, economics, thinking about institutions, thinking about federal government power, federalism. I thought we needed uh, sort of a new uh, and fresh approach and sort of some you know Uh, Hopefully some controversial thinking that would push uh, uh, the dial a little bit, and so Michael Grava was our our first big writer, and he had the book The Upside-Down Constitution, which was sort of a hearkening back to a much older model of federalism, not sort of necessarily just the rights of states, but something like – you know, Justice Joseph Story, uh, John Marshall, Alexander Hamilton, sort of emphasizing the national commercial aspect of uh, uh, of the American federal government, and that creating space for states really to compete within that realm. So uh, that's a long way of saying I, I thought we needed new approaches and new thinking, and I wanted to use the you know tremendous gift that Liberty Fund afforded, not just financially, but also the intellectual capital that Liberty Fund has generated over the decades to sort of be something that I could rely upon in putting together, uh, you know, writers and ideas and books and things that we could talk about on the website. So we are, um, uh, we're known as a a legal site, but we're a lot more than law. Uh, We're we're policy, we're legal history, we're, um, uh, I think, economics, political economy, and we're open to a wide range of perspectives, I think, you know, from the center primarily from the center all the way to, uh, you know, sort of uh, very conservative thinking. And um, and we're trying to be uh, the online conjugation of Liberty Fund, which is a a conversation online amongst people who take liberty and responsibility very seriously and know that's sort of an unending uh, topic of discussion. Mm -hmm. Um, Within that, Liberty Law Talk is sort of my attempt to preview – or think about serious books, uh, serious articles and essays. People are writing in a range of fields, and, and I just try and introduce
0: their thinking, push back a little bit, and see where the conversation goes, sort of like what you do on Econ Talk. And just as an example, a recent guest was – saw I was Gordon Wood, a historian yes. on uh, Jefferson and, and Adams. Is it, was it Adams?
1: It was uh, yeah a new book on Thomas Jefferson and John Adams and their rivalry, their friendship, and uh, you know sort of who best explains America. They each have you know different facets and aspects. I think of the American mind and American practice, and so it's it's Gordon Wood. He's one of our best historians of the American founding. So that's,
0: that's, yeah. uh, we'll put links up to all of that, and uh, let's let's start with our conversation. Yeah, uh, I, w- I want to start uh, with the Enlightenment and. I- you know, this is an area that I'm increasingly interested in, uh, and mainly because I'm I'm pretty ignorant about it, so I'm trying to educate myself. Uh, if you'd ask me, what's the Enlightenment? I would say, well, uh, it, it goes back to John Locke and other philosophical figures. Locke emphasized natural law, private property, the rule of law, and that combined with uh, respect for reason – uh, engendered, uh, scientific revolution and technology. And the rest is history. Capitalism takes off. Democracy takes off and the combination transforms the lives of most of the people living in the West. That's sort of, I would call the romantic, uh, story of the enlightenment. Uh, is there something missing from that story? Well, I think you know, I my thinking in this was heavily influenced by
1: Gertrude Himmelfarb, who had a book that basically argued uh, the Enlightenment is a series of tales. And so the question becomes: uh, Which Enlightenment are we discussing, uh, and and what was its project? What were its goals? And so we have a German Enlightenment. We have a French Enlightenment. Uh, we have a Scottish Enlightenment, which you've you know, you've written a lot about Adam Smith. Uh, many people would argue there is an American Enlightenment, which is primarily about political science and political thought. Uh, but within that, uh, you know, I think the the crucial questions that emerge are what what preexisted them, what con- that I'm interested in, what contributed and shaped what they did, what were their goals, and who's within the circle of the Enlightenment, and so. Uh, that, to me, sparks a lot of questions, and then, of course, um, you know, there's, there are darker aspects of the Enlightenment, and so I, I consider myself more of a, also a student of you know, what we might characterize as dissident studies, which would be you know, thinkers like Dostoevsky, uh, or in the 20th century, Leo Strauss, or Alexander Solzhenitsyn, uh, Whitaker Chambers in America, and others who sort of looked at the romantic story of the Enlightenment, the reason, the science, the progress, the liberalism, all of this sort of business and said, wow, this also introduces an enormous amount of power, hubris, uh, arrogance and inability to self limit on the part of man and that man's mind starts to constitute reality itself and what sort of you know, dialectic or what sort of process does that introduce into politics and you know, the social order of man's affairs. So I think that's you know, that's how I come at this, and that's how it was the basis that I worked from, when I reviewed uh, General Goldberg's book, which is
0: sort of a pay to I think what he draws as a very narrow conception of the Enlightenment. Well, you know you talked about you made a mention of something about you know what came before the Enlightenment. I think again for those of us who are not well informed, uh the The general idea if you had asked me to describe what was the, what came before the Enlightenment, but we know we know what came before it was the dark ages. It was a right. bunch of monks in uh hooded robes shuffling along dark corridors um chanting and uh occasionally transcribing uh old lifeless manuscripts and then suddenly um uh let 's see how i 'm going to see if I can quote this correctly uh it 's from uh it's from Alexander Pope. It's something it goes something like this: "Nature and its laws lay hid from sight. Then Newton was, and all was light." Something like that. that that's. Mm, I apologize yes. for not quite. I, I might be off a word or two, but but the idea that that Newton uh, and 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 that's late. Uh, we're in the late uh, 17th century at this point. That Newton, in the last half of the 17th century, and others. Uh, Kicked off the scientific revolution, uh, turned against – so goes the story. It's not, of course, true, but Mm -hmm. turned against religion and superstition, and as a result, um, modernity was born. And, of course, that simplified story is missing a lot of pieces. Yeah, I mean, I think Newton, uh, Francis
1: Bacon, there's uh, obviously the political side of this. You mentioned one thinker, John Locke. I think this this idea that you can somehow, um, which did prove true uh, in many respects, that you can bring nature under control and make it serve uh, human purposes. And as the famous phrase from Bacon, you know, science can be brought in the relief of man's estate. And you can s- start to see material progress happen. And I don't I mean, I don't want to give the impression that I'm counter-enlightenment or that I'm anti-enlightenment in that regard. I think what, I, what we should be open to, even when we say that process and we think about um, who the human person is, is when you begin to unlock that, there is power uh, working, there is will working. Uh, part of the enlightenment, part of the explanation that's given for the power of the science is you no longer think about formal And final cause, which had been such a tremendous part of Aristotle's thinking and a part of the uh, pre modern mind leading into early modernity. And you strip away final cause and you're just focused on this imminent process of what you're doing, which, you know, this experiment, observation, production, uh, you know, thinking about your results and what you're going to do with them. Um, The question then becomes purpose and what's it for? Uh, What's it all about? Who's it serving? Uh, Is it serving mankind? Uh, Is it serving a particular group or a particular group in power? Um, I mean, this one way of thinking about this is Alexander Solzhenitsyn's formulation uh, that these gifts of science and technology coming out of the Enlightenment are also a profound trial of the human will. And can you actually use them ultimately uh, for the relief of man's estate, or do they get used uh, as tools of power against other people? And I think the reason why we're weary now of technology and progress, and we look at sort of the AI revolution, or we look at uh, uh, other aspects, the biotech revolution, is we've seen these things used horrifically. Uh, we've seen you know, the nuclear weapon, the nuclear bomb defined and affect the 20th century, and as, as you know, this, this grip of terror that could destroy the world. Well, mankind created that through modern science. Uh, that wasn't religion, that wasn't superstition, that wasn't bigotry, that was science. And we have to come to terms with that aspect now, I think, and that's sort of this, you know, this idea of a, of a postmodern uh, conservative reflection on the full goods of human nature and sort of conjugating that with what we produce through science and technology.
0: I was reading, doing some reading for this conversation, and I came across a quote from Thomas Jefferson that the three people that you just happened to mention a minute ago, Francis Bacon, Isaac Newton, and John Locke, Jefferson called, I, th- I think, some- he said something like the three greatest people who've ever lived without question. Yeah, yeah They're the three people you'd want to have dinner with uh, if you could, if you could bring them back to life. And and hopefully, uh, for me, they all speak some kind of English, uh, you know, not not exactly my kind, but but something yeah. I could probably have have some understanding of at, at dinner uh, in that in that conversation. But I want to I want to come back to Solzhenitsyn um, because, uh, as fate would have it, uh, I just want to mention this to to reader to listeners anyway. It's just fascinates me. I read Solzhenitsyn in my twenties. I read a whole bunch of Solzhenitsyn. Solzhenitsyn at least three of his novels, All the Gulag, August 2014, The Oak of the Calf. I was a huge, huge uh, fan. And then I t- didn't read him for you know, 35, 40 years. And I recently picked up what was once called The First Circle, which was a yes. claim novel of his that's now been reissued under the title In the First Circle, which um, he had, in the original publication, he had self-censored. He had taken out large chunks of it to make sure it could get published. And recently, in the last, I think, decade, it was reissued the way he wrote it originally, uh, or at least the way he wanted to write it, um, and translated into English. And I'm about a third of the way through it. Of course, like all Russian books, it's extremely long. It's yeah. uh, 700-something pages, uh, but it is magnificent. I've forgotten what an extraordinarily uh, insightful book writer he is, what an insightful student of human nature, how funny he is in dark places um, in the gulag and in the prison camps. Yeah. And and so I just – I want to put a plug in for that book at least a third of the way through. I, if I change my mind when I'm finished, I think I will finish it. If I, if I change my mind, I'll let listeners know. But, but I, it is so far. I just – I'm really so glad. Well, and
1: it's – and I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that you know, we're coming up on the 40th anniversary of uh, Solzhenitsyn's famous Harvard Address. Which uh, you know, can is, is seen as the moment when Solzhenitsyn sort of goes from uh, this freedom fighter that uh, Western I call him beloved dissident, a <laughs> beloved dissident, and he he goes from sort of being someone everybody's looking to and applauding, and he's kind of a celebrity, and then he comes to Harvard and he says something like the West is lost in its own abstractions and is lost in its own purposelessness and seems to be committing a sort of suicide in the face of communist aggression. You no longer know what you're about is basically what he, what he tells them you're, 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 you're lost in materialism. Uh, your secularism has sort of cut you off from the sources of your civilization. And so Solzhenitsyn sort of becomes a much more difficult figure. And in fact, when I talk about social needs, sometimes, particularly among Russian historians, they, they, you find them kind of uh, becoming a little more skeptical uh, of him and, and of what he is about. But you know, the books that you mentioned, um, one of the titles in that series is The Red Wheel. And what he meant by that is this was, nothing of this was inevitable uh, in the sense of a communist revolution in Russia, it's through human choice. And it's through human beings making a choice that the red wheel begins to turn more and more and more. And there's ultimately no way at at, at a certain point to stop sort of the the grip of the Soviet Union or of Russia in in communist tyranny. It's sort of, it's inevitable, inevitable, not inevitable, but it's an amazing reflection on human freedom turning against human nature. And denying who we are as human persons, and leading to that uh, process of destruction that you know then results in Russia for the next seventy years.
0: And you can argue, at least my memory of of his writing, and certainly the two hundred or so pages I've I've read so far of in the first circle, he's constantly um, balancing the his characters are constantly having to cope with the fact that their life is a lie. Uh, Communism is evil. It's not uh, designed to improve humanity. And yet at the same time, many of them are holding on to the potential for communism to redeem humanity, partly because it's all they've got. It's the only myth they've ever uh, gotten Mm -hmm. to explore. And yet here's Solzhenitsyn relentlessly, sardonically, uh, Exposing this this dual paradigm that doesn't hold together, and it's just it's a it's he's really a giant. um The other part of that, of course, that Harvard address you, you called it famous, it's not famous anymore. I don't think it's famous to you, and it's famous to me, but most people, I'm sure, listening, don't know of it. Uh, I would suspect that the modal number of books that my audience has read by Soltisen is zero. Um, as okay. uh, my guess, I could be. I'd love to be wrong. If, if you've read something by him, it might be one, a day in the life of Ivan Denisovich, which was an important book. And and um, yes. but I send that to my interns every summer. But, but it's not a. Yeah. It's not a. It's not the masterpiece that or masterpieces no. he came to write uh, as he as he um, as time passed. But I, I want to. Um, I want to talk about. The uh, the other point I was going to make about the the that that Harvard address is that it also dealt a lot, if I remember correctly, with nationalism and and a, a love of of Russia that is yes. uh, was very alien to Americans and I think uh, remains ex- extremely un- makes a lot of Americans very uncomfortable, especially with the rise of Putin and and mm-hmm. uh, current situation there. But I'm going to take us in a different direction. That's, okay. that's all preamble. I. I I want to try to respond to something you said about human choice and human nature and our embrace of technology, and that it's we don't have a purpose and and I think you know I'm I'm going to be a you're a conservative I'm more of a libertarian and I'm going to bring out my Hayekian side here which is not conservative and Mm -hmm. the Hayekian side of me is is all about emergent order in this conversation it says you know we don't really have We don't make choices as a society. We don't make choices as groups. We make choices as individuals. And we're all confronted with the chaos of the world around us. We have the options open to us. Uh, we have the products that we can buy, the ways we can spend our time, the people we can choose to interact with. And what freedom is about in that enterprise is really – it's whatever you make of it. And and for one person, it might be uh, the freedom to worship in a church that that's meaningful to that person for another it's to be uh to pursue a hobby and and to get extremely good at it for someone else it's to build a business and and make a lot of money uh for someone else it's to do a lot of volunteering uh and that the result of all those choices is the world we see around us not some individual's will not the will of the state or a particular politician and so when I look at the, so I'll play pessimist just to mm. stay on your mm-hmm. page. If I say, well, yeah, you mentioned you're, the atomic, well, you're being the optimist. What? What? You're being you're being more optimistic. I'm not sure. No, I'm okay. gonna, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure at all. Actually, I, I, you know, let's put the atomic bomb to the, to the side and let's accept the possibility that artificial intelligence, or even more trivially, social media, smartphones, et cetera, are not good for us. Um, let's suppose that's true. Uh, I I'm open-minded about it. I'm not I think we're going to see a massive cultural response. We're starting to see it now a little bit. I think we'll see a bigger one. But you could argue that, you know, they're not healthy. They lead to alienation. They are um, they're purposeless. And uh that's our choice. Yeah, that's up to us. We don't no one's forced it down our throat. It's not inevitable. We can walk away from it if we choose to. We evidently have trouble doing that, but it's not like um there's a, a, technology, a technology wheel that we're, that's rolling forward, crushing all of us. That's being steered by just to pick a random name, you say Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg. Mm-hmm. They're just appealing to the deeply rooted parts of our human nature for attention and for leisure yeah. and for pursuit of, of of things to do with our time. And that's that's just the way it is. But you, that's not the way you told the story. How do you, how do you react to that? Well,
1: I, I well. I, what I would say is things are getting better and worse at the same time uh, and w- we should always keep that in mind I, i'm i'm not i'm not uh uh, a reactionary or someone who is against technology. I don't want to give that impression. The point about the purpose is this is sort of a, a basic contention of modern science that we're, we're not necessarily worried about uh, purpose uh, in the sense of what nature is about and what we're doing with it. We're focusing on what we can do, what we can predict, and then how we can apply and uh, you know applied science, apply technology, and and just and just sort of and just sort of thinking about what problems that might institute on, on the questions of technology. Look, there. Are, uh, just think about uh, social media, uh, the smartphones by which we access it for the most part. I think there are good and bad sides uh, in that. And, and I wouldn't it's, – it's you know even thinking about my own children using uh, you know, the phones. I mean one of my sons stays on the phone way too much. And yet at the same time, uh, there are a lot of good things I think he's also been exposed to there. So it's that's not necessarily I think where I'm coming down. I think, though, your point – I mean my response to you is, well, this is just what – People do. There's no real process, et cetera. You know, I, I think that's a that is probably too much uh, to ignore human dependability and uh, the fact that we are connected and the fact that things are working at multiple levels—social, political, economic, cultural. Things are being defined through force of argument, through force of law, force of will, and shape the world we live in. Liberalism is not immune from this. Liberalism has, in effect, to um, be implanted by law and will have to displace a certain other – and did displace – other modes of activity and human interaction uh, to forge a new realm of, ne- of networks of commerce and political liberty and freedom. And I'm not opposed to that. I'm just saying – no one, Nothing is immune. Nothing is immune from imperfection, uh, from problems, from errors, and we have to be aware of that and think about the seeds of destruction uh, within something good like liberalism, like modern technology, and try and account for it. It's not – we can't get involved in just so stories or the arch of history or things like that. We need to be aware of the problems and dynamics of human freedom and what our choices do
0: and, and what they unintentionally can lead to. Why don't you define liberalism as you see it? You've used it a couple of times. Or what does that term mean yeah, to you? I,
1: well, I, I see liberalism ultimately uh, has an attempt uh, by human beings to protect themselves uh, from certain power claims, uh, primarily through government or actors, you know, using the government, say, to you know, in, inflict, say, a religious or various political ideologies on people. Uh, And so that's good. Uh, But I think one question is, what does liberalism depend on? And I think liberalism depends on a view of the human person that is uh, filled with an infinite longing, uh, with a a need for transcendence, with a need to uh, know the truth about ourselves. And so liberalism, as much as it is, I think, as I prefer, I I would argue a a neutral set of ideas, maybe at best conceived a neutral set of ideas to protect human liberty also I think is built on a conception of the human person, that is working through the full range, um, both of a Greek philosophy but also the Jewish Christian tradition when we think about the human person, and so it's, 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 very, it's a complex dance uh, it's, a, it's an art, I think, to sort of balance liberalism it's also a civilization of human beings that are also open to the good, and open to the truth about ourselves, and we can't sort of cut that process off, I think, was sort of a regnant uh, secularism or something that you know would, would distract us or take
0: us away from those deep questions. So your definition of liberal, liberalism is more what I would call something like classical liberalism crossed with some conservative flavors about uh, transcendence, um, human nature, and yeah, I mean, I think what I'm saying is liberalism
1: can't go on its own accord. Uh, it's not a self-sufficient body of ideas that doesn't require a lot of tributary sources um, that it finds that are uncomfortable to negotiate, but yet are there because human beings are full of potential and uh, full of you know, a lot of difficult truths
0: that we have to sort of conjugate and account for. So modern listeners would respond. I think many modern listeners would respond to that with the following claim, and I, I'll it's going to jumble a few things together. But you know, I, if you said to me, "What's the modern religion of America?" I'd say it's uh, it's not Christianity, it's not Judaism, and it's not Islam. It's not I believe in atheism. It's I would call it self actualization. Yeah, that's, no, I I don't disagree with you on that. Yeah, that that that's our credo. Our credo is the world is here for the world's my oyster. Uh, The world is here for me to explore and to serve me. Uh, It's for me to find out what I can get from it. And I do that by all kinds of things. I learn some things and I get some skills and I have a job and a career. And my inner life is is up to me. It's none of your business. Uh, And to pretend that our well-being depends. Now I'm going to step back philosophically. Mm-hmm. The connection that it claims that that our well-being depends on those tributaries. I, I just you know I'm going to I'll play. Uh, maybe I'm playing Jonah Goldberg here. What, what do I need, <laughs> What do I need all that for? We've got a good country. We got a bunch of rules that have served us pretty well for 200 plus years. We have a mixed economy. It's not really too free market, but it's not socialist either. Uh, it's at risk of drifting in in one direction or another, perhaps. But we have a, a grab bag of an economy. We have a grab bag of a political order, and it's pretty good. We have got the highest standard of living you could argue in human history. You could debate whether it's how widespread it is, uh, how deeply it's enjoyed. But you know, I, we talk about that now and then on Econ Talk, but. It's going pretty well. What are you worried about? Yeah, I mean, in a way, I mean, where to begin? Um, I,
1: I don't dispute you, uh, and, and I think I think this is true. It's also the case we have in America, um, and, and these numbers don't change. Uh, we think about the rise of the so-called nuns, that is, people who don't identify with any religion. N-O-N-E-S. Um, oh, N-O-N-E-S, which I also think is just people who – had uh, a very nominal identification with the religious faith and are yep. just you – know, and there's no real social pressure anymore, so they're just saying this is who yeah, I am. Stand off. I'm, I'm a nun. Um, but then there's this other group, 35 to 40 percent of Americans, and, and I don't think this has really changed in the last few decades, for whom uh, an institutional religious presence in their lives is quite consequential. And uh, is is a you know, integrating aspect of their life. Uh, so we have to. We're a complicated country. We're a very complicated country. We have to sort of account for all of that. And but my my point is, what's what is our alienation? I mean, just basically What does our alienation point to? Uh, what does sort of this incredibly wealthy country, uh, incredible opportunities, and yet sort of, uh, in another sense, immense sadness and anxiety. My, my chief evidence would be antidepressant medications and antidepressant subscriptions. Uh, how, how, how do you account for that? And, and, and I think it is, there's something like there is a longing of the human person, there is trouble for the human person, uh, you, know, as, you know, the biblical saying is the sparks fly upward. Uh, that's, you know, so marks man's path in this world. Where does all of that come from? Why are we not content with our success, with our material accomplishments and achievements, which are incredible by any standard of, of human history? And I think that is something like uh, mankind is a, uh, an animal but also a spiritual transcendent being. And we can't sort of ignore, as Tocqueville would say, <clears throat> when you ignore the soul and its requirements, big trouble comes rushing in. Uh, and and, and when he t- you know what well, all the things that Tocqueville was fearful of I won't go into a Tocqueville seminar, but these this somehow as if this is, could somehow be ignored uh, by late democratic man uh, I, I find it one part of it is sort of uh, historically uh, deficient, but it, it's also sort of our increasing refusal to ask ourselves what does it actually mean to be free. What does it actually mean to be autonomous? What's the point of all of this? Uh, and I don't think we're ultimately satisfied with, as Leo Strauss would say, the joyless quest for joy. And you know, and my 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 case in point would be um, look at uh, look at our politics now. Um, look at sort of these strange uh, movements like global warming, now it's climate change. Uh, look at this, I, and I think this sort of this thinking about who the human person is with regards to human sexuality, particularly transgenderism and the way and since we're told that we have to accept this idea now. That to me is what happens when you do begin to ignore the soul and its requirements. You're still trying to fill up a longing and it's just going to come out in, I think, strange ways.
0: Well, I don't, I don't agree with a little bit of that and I disagree with, with a chunk, but I don't, I don't think I don't think climate change or transgenderism is a is necessarily a manifestation of the alienation you're talking about. Well, it's, I,
1: no, it is. It it is in the sense of it's a spiritual longing. It's an attempt to account for the whole, and and I think that's a that's a part of what happens uh, in a secular in a very secular society is the religious aspect comes out and comes out in different ways. Um, so I'm that's, that's, that's ultimately, to that. and I look at you think. The refusal to account for evidence. I mean, this is also sort of interesting to me on on these issues of climate change, or to admit of doubt, or the possibility that you may not know all the answers. Where does that come from? So,
0: well, I you know I've I've gotten in trouble with many listeners on the program in the past by suggesting that there are aspects of religious belief in the environmental movement, but I but they of course are offended by that. Rightfully so. They they think they're scientific, and they see any skepticism, which I'm you know I'm more agnostic than atheist on climate change, but uh, meaning that I think there is climate change. I'm agnostic on whether there's how large it is and whether there's anything we can do about it that's productive. But um, they would be deeply offended by that description. Having said that, I am sympathetic to the David Foster Wallace line, which I think is profound, which is everyone worships. that's uh, that, that. We do have a longing for things greater than ourselves, um, but I, you know, to come back to your point about alienation and about drug use, antidepressants, uh, the left—not not the liberals that you like, but the liberals mm-hmm. that are on the other side of the fence. you mean, the left, the progressive side of American politics would say, "Well, sure, people are alienated. They don't mm-hmm. have a role to play in the American economy." There there's racism, sexism, and other types of of oppressive thought that make it hard for people to, to cope with life. And that's our problem. It's not the fact that we don't have religion anymore or that capitalism is purposeless or any of the things that you're pointing to. They they have their own explanation. What's wrong with theirs? Well, I think, you know, it sort of harkens back uh, to an idea of Michael Polanyi <clears throat> and he
1: he attributes this to Rousseau, getting back to sort of a maybe a reactionary thinker to the Enlightenment, is what Rousseau does is he takes religious motivations and makes them imminent and makes them uh, know this worldly and directed to uh, sort of man's um, emancipated relief. And I think that in many respects, so it's, it's a romantic notion, uh, uh, which I think cannot be ultimately separated from the Christian inheritance and thinking about what's good for man. And Rousseau sort of combines that in a very emphatic way. And I think the left historically has maintain that focus it's it's a immunitizing of religion and, and so to speak and i and i think when i when i hear this sort of so there's the and then it gets kind of layered over in the 19th century with the scientific um uh strapping of of uh, reason and the laws of you know, dialectical history pointing in a certain direction in the direction of equality etc and then there's these structures of power and so that's That sort of analysis still holds, I think, for them uh, now when when they think about American politics and power. Um, On a a practical level, uh, one does have to think, how does Bernie Sanders, uh, a park bench socialist as someone called him, take Hillary Clinton to the wire, thinking about Donald Trump, et cetera. There is is something you have to account for uh, when you think about why are people alienated, what are they alienated from, Where's the progress and opportunity, things like that? There are issues there that have to be accounted for. And I think part of this is the human person. And we have embraced, and I think this is very much a part of our converged elites, sort of an autonomous individualism. We've embraced a set of policies around that, and I don't think we've adequately thought about the social, relational nature of man, which also has to be supported at law. And when you give that away, and this is not unique to me, Robert Nisbet would have argued this precisely. When you kind of reduce man to this sort of one density uh, of an individual, and then you've got the state – uh, then you sort of open yourself up to a lot of strange political movements I think that's that 's actually one of our fundamental problems right now is we 're not accounting for the human person in his full relational capacity and the differentiated
0: dimensions of human nature so i 've exposed myself a little bit here as uh, the tension that I feel in the modern era as a libertarian and the the appeal to of conservatism which i Again, I'm not a conservative, but I do increasingly find myself intrigued by some conservative concepts that uh, would have been alien to me. So l- let me try to to talk about that in the in light of the uh, current political climate. So one view says, and this I perhaps I'm I think I'm being fair to your, to your story, okay. and you correct me if I'm wrong. So one view says that there's something sick at the heart of of humanity. Uh, it goes back a long way. It goes back, you could say, to Eden. It goes back to our very nature. Uh, you know, nothing straight can be made from the crooked timber of humanity. Uh, we're we're troubled and and we're complicated and we're, like you say, we're animals with, um, and yet we're also aware of that of the transcendent and of awe and wonder, and that's an inherently tough road to hoe. Uh, certainly, that was the theme. Emma Gokrist was talking about in his recent EconTalk episode. Um, so, in in that view, our current political strife, the polarization of America, the uh, center not holding, which I find mm-hmm. deeply disturbing, is um, is a result of our our failure to to come to grips with that that nature yeah. of ourselves. It's a, a certain uh, again, I'm giving the conservative view now, which I consider to be your view, and it's a view I'm I'm more sympathetic to than I was five years ago, which is yeah. that, you know, this, to pretend that we can just be animals search, in search of pleasure, profit maximizing, utility maximizing, all we need is economic growth, the, that the material, mm-hmm. the physical, the economic, not economics, but the financial side of life is all that really we need to worry about. And that's, that's, uh, and that's what—that's uh, wrong," says the conservative. The conservative says, "You're missing this essential piece of our of our being, and that mm-hmm. was once satisfied by religion, increasingly less so. And we're unmoored, we're untethered, we we are at, we're lost, so- and and losing sight
1: of of relational institutions." The Instability of those uh, as well, but you know, family, family, uh, the church, we, we mentioned, we mentioned community. religion, also the loss of self-government. Um, I think the ability both local and at state levels for people to govern themselves, even if those decisions don't sit well with sort of the you know upper or, the, you know, say certain uh, elite educated uh, core group in our country, things like that. And, and people start to understand, start to ask a question. Can I actually see myself in my country? Or am I disposable and a throwaway? And uh, in that respect, we, we, you know, people start to act up and they and they start to think, "Man, it's now or never. I've got to make a decision and, and, and I've got to do some things." And so uh, that's sort of where we are. And that- I think both elites in both parties uh, didn't see that, didn't understand oh, that, and um, and and it was both willful, I think, in certain respects, and also it caught them off guard. And that's. I think that explains not not only Trump, but also Bernie Sanders to a remarkable degree.
0: And Brexit, and uh, things are going on in in the continent of Europe as well, unease with immigration, unease with the European project, the rise of nationalism. And so we haven't talked about nationalism. I hope we'll get to it in a little bit. But uh, certainly, uh, if you think about the different divisions in the American Public, one of them, I would, I would say, is is nationalism versus um, uh, cosmopolitanism—the idea that we're all just citizens of this planet versus America's a great country yeah. and we should be proud of it. But that's the conservative view. I want to get now the libertarian view, the view that I'm more comfortable with until recently. I'm now I'm a little uncomfortable with it, but I think I'm going to put it on the table, which is okay. my view as an economist is, you know, there's a lot of incentives here that have just gone awry. Uh, mm-hmm. The way that the media is able to uh, foment anger, the way that social media has encouraged and allowed louder people to control the debate. The idea, I mean, just take an example of globalization. The libertarian slash economist view of globalization is basically it gives you more choices. Let's just make it really simple. The conservative view is no, no, it's a. It's a uh it's trick. It's we're we're losing control of our destiny, our manufacturing base, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the as an economist, I say, well, you just you know, that's a narrative, that conservative narrative in this case, or I'll make it more of a populist narrative. A populist yeah. narrative is just wrong. It's just a misreading of 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 the way the world actually works, but you're prone to it because it's a tribal Thing that that you're susceptible to as a uh, as somebody who doesn't have the incentive to fully to be fully informed about how globalization really works and what its full effects are, and so Brexit and other um, uh, populist type movements are, they're not a sign of of say our, our disrepair or our, our discomfort with ourselves. Just the way that the incentives have been twisted recently, and the institutions have failed to respond because no one's in charge of them, and so it's not some fundamental problem. We just need to uh, it, a better way to say it is. It, it, there's a problem there, but it, the way to solve it isn't a, isn't about isn't it, doesn't have anything to do with trying to figure out what uh, you know religion people should be listening to, or uh, mm-hmm. you know I, I don't I don't know I don't know where your vision takes me. I don't well, know where I your vision takes well, me as a policy person. Okay. As an economist, I say, I like freedom. Freedom is really good. Let's let people choose what makes them happy. And I'm not going to agree with what makes you happy. And you're not going to agree with what makes me happy. But we don't need to worry about uh, solving people's need for purpose because that's not my business. And I think I, I don't understand how the conservative view mm-hmm. uh, well, solves that issue.
1: Well, and in the case that wasn't clear back earlier, I, I, I was not arguing um, – some sort of enforced uh, religion on people through law. Uh, I do think it's in, it's important in that regard that the law not be seen as an enemy of institutionalized religion. And there has been, I think, with some justification, a perception uh, that it has become that. But just put that to the side. Uh, you know, question just backing up for a minute. Uh, how you know difficult this can be? Uh, you, we talked about you know nationalism versus cosmopolitanism. So I think. The wise course is to find the median between a reductive nationalism and an unreflective cosmopolitanism of our elite, and uh, and I think that's you have to sort of show what the good is and how I think uh, a certain amount of patriotism, a certain amount of consent of the governed, and thinking that both that the history of the country and the trajectory of the country follow in a path, you know, wide. Uh, varieties of people within the country approve of that 's really I think the goal of uh, of an American statesman right now and, and also I think of of statesmen in europe and the, the problem, I think, is, and I always I hesitate to pronounce upon what's going on in various European countries, is that balance wasn't maintained. And we might be getting sort of a trajectory to a, a reductive nationalism in certain countries. Um, but there is, I think, uh, a hope and a, and a goal that somehow you could uh, keep in mind the consent of the governed. Uh, and also have – a it, it might not be the libertarian hope for free trade, but a qualified free trade. And also you know, another hot-button issue between libertarians and conservatives uh, is one of immigration. Yep. Um, but also – so I mean I, I favor a system of immigration. I think probably the question that I would ask is what does the traditional American openness to immigration, uh, which has been <laughs> punctuated by some pretty harsh closures at times. You know, but it's but a, what, and does, what does that – so what does that look like? now admits uh, both two problems. One's a welfare state problem, but the other problem is the uh, statism of multiculturalism. And if you you look back to the last uh, major uh, proposed uh, immigration reform bill, I mean, the power of the state to enforce uh, multicultural dictates on incoming immigrant groups, to me, was very troubling, Uh,
0: just apart from... Whether what else what do you going mean going by that? What do you mean by multicultural uh, so you, dictate? You
1: are, you are bringing immigrants into America, mm-hmm. not as individuals, not as rights bearers who are going to be entrusted uh, with becoming Americans and becoming part, as part of a Republican and uh, capitalist uh, society. But your goal is to use the state to turn them into client groups, and, and people sort of see that process now uh, – as a part of, of any immigration system and, and it bothers them. And I, and I think there's something to think about there. Um, and also, you know, so in the, in the perspective, you know, keeping in mind that citizenship is not just rent seeking uh, citizenship is not just, uh, you know, some superstition or something we make up to make ourselves feel good, but that it actually matters in a Republican society, uh, to be a part of it. And also, to be full and active and engaged and to be educating yourself and all of these sorts of things, which kind of sound a little Thomas Jefferson high school commencement speech, but it really does matter. And those, that also has been forgotten. But it used to be a huge part of the way we thought about immigration. Um, and we used to enforce it severely at, at times. And I, and I don't, you know, and I would apologize for some of the harshness of that. We don't need that. But it's, you know, you are coming here and you will become one of us, you will not be, you know, stay a part of a group uh, directed by the state. And that's those are sort of the issues and the challenges, I think, when it comes to immigration. But as, a, you know, as opposed to what, uh, Australia, Canada, uh, other systems that come out of the Anglo constitutional network have uh, very wide ranging immigration systems, but they're very different from ours. And that's also something we're thinking
0: about. When you say Republican, you, of course, mean small all are. Yeah, not yeah. not the party, but the the kind of government we have. I want to back up a little bit and I wanna I wanna ask a question that's kind of a, a little bit against the rules for a, a Liberty Fund uh podcast with two hosts, three <laughs> hosts, but mm-hmm. I'm gonna ask it anyway, which is so uh we could debate uh the nature of the enlightenment. You know, there's a bunch of books out on it now, and I'm hoping to interview a bunch of of those authors uh, in the next few months, so I hope these questions are of interest to listeners. If they're not, you'll let me know. I'm sure, and maybe I'll cut right. back. But um, we can debate how much of the Enlightenment is about, you know, anti religion, pro religion. How much of it has a dark side versus a not dark side? Whether the whether communism and fascism are the products of the Enlightenment or not, people debate that. Uh, and and so we've come to a strange point in intellectual. A strange intellectual moment in America, where where we're going to debate what, you know, exactly what the Enlightenment is and and whether it's good or not. And my non-liberty fund question is: Does it really matter? Who, who cares whether John Locke was really first or whether it was uh, Fortescue or Selden before him or others who mm-hmm. were part of the story? Who cares? Uh, the role that Thomas Aquinas played in, in the Enlightenment or the Church—that's yeah, positive. It's not all the negative story you hear. Isn't this just intellectual games that people play? Well, I know you don't believe that, so I'm asking this rhetorically. Yeah. You know, why, why do we care? Who cares where America came from? Who cares what our founding myths were? They're gone. They're over. It's it's it, that's it's ancient history. That, that goes. I don't really care what Thomas Jefferson thought. He's he's long gone. He's a flawed human being. He's not a saint. And we have to go forward, do the best we can. What do I need to know about all this intellectual history? Well, uh, <laughs> where to begin? Um, you got Thirteen minutes, roughly. Yeah, no, I, crucial, I I'll give you a little longer if you need it. Go. <laughs> a, a part, a part here is who are who
1: is the human person, and how do human beings, who are dependent, rational animals, govern themselves, and what does that governing process look like? And it has to involve and. and um, involves uh, different combinations of questions that people ask, coming to answers with those and living with the consequences. It also means you begin the process of your formation of, of a country, of a civilization, of a people. And that, and that process is legal, it's religious, it's the cultural products of that. That starts to shape who we are in order to even to understand yourself who you are, what you should do now, what you should think about about what you should do now. Involves your history. It involves looking back and thinking about who you are, and who are the best articulators of that. And so that's why, if you're thinking about, uh, you know, if you're thinking about the Western legal tradition, is this is my review of Goldberg's book. You you can't just start 350 years ago. You you want to start maybe a lot sooner, and you want to you want to think about a lot of things that that go on. So that I mean that's that's maybe a short answer, but it, it matters also because the human person is a being who wonders, who asks questions. I think, I would argue. And he wants to know what he should do and what's the best, and he wants to know the whole. And that begins sort of this process of, and when we, how do we understand that? How do we make those investigations? Literature. Uh, how do we put that down and, and erect that and say, this is who we are, and this is sort of what I would argue is the nobility of politics. We begin to shape ourselves in the certain conception of the good. So we put that down, and we look at heroes and those who preserve our political tradition. That's why you know, Winston Churchill... Or Abraham Lincoln are always sort of touchstones, I think both in in, in our country and in Britain because they are seen as conservers of the political tradition and so that's you are you are constantly engaged in this process as a human person as a rational questing questioning animal to understand who you are and what you should do and a, and a wise man, a humble man, knows that he doesn 't have all of the answers he needs he needs help, and so that 's why this stuff matters. And it also matters uh, because human beings, uh, you know, we could say we're equal under law, uh, but we're not equal in every respect. Certain people have certain gifts and they articulate things um, and they are seen as valued, uh, has a great quality and worthy of continued discussion. And that's one way to think about uh, the canon uh, that we study if we think about the humanities in a, as opposed to the way the humanities are done in most college campuses, the way they were done previously, there was a body of knowledge being transmitted and you were invited as a student into the conversation but that required a great discipline and duty on your part to enter into it, but to not think that you were going to redefine it. You might be able to add to it if you were if you were worthy.
0: I'll try to give another. I don't know whether it's libertarian or Hayekian response to that, because I would say what, you know, the world's. I'm very sympathetic to that, by the way. I'm I'm being somewhat of a devil's advocate here, but I am I. I have to concede I'm not so confident in my actual views, so that's why I'm playing devil's advocate okay. to see how far I can push myself and push you. Yeah, this is all just myth-making. This is a counterpoint. It's all just myth-making. The world's really complicated. There are a thousand tributaries that all – some of them lead into the same river. Some of them go off into rivers that that went off into the the, Mm -hmm. uh, caves uh, and never were were ridden on or drunk from again uh, or fished in. And to try to tell a simple story like uh, you and I sitting here in America in 2018 are the product of – Of John Locke or whether it's not John Locke, it's actually Fortescue or whether it's not Locke or Fortescue, but it's Rousseau or it's whatever. It's just uh, it's inherently a meaningless concept because it's so complicated. And why do I really need to know what I come from? Uh, Mm -hmm. Can I just start from scratch? You know, I'm just, you know, my kids are raised, my kids don't know much about these ideas. I know a little bit. They've talked a few times about these things at the dinner table, but Mm-hmm. Can't they just can't we just let America go forward as we are? Now you could argue but you need myths to sustain things, but let's not pretend they're anything other than myths. These are just different myths. The left has a myth, yeah. which I kinda gave a version of a little while ago. I get it hang I could you know, I could expound on it longer. Conservatives have a myth, libertarians have a myth. We're all just competing myths. There's no truth here. It's the postmodern side of me. What do you say to that? Well, I mean it's
1: I mean it's an illogical argument. To begin with, Uh, one is, is, I mean, for for obvious reasons, right? You're you're privileging your skepticism itself as the ground of truth or as as the ground of the myth or something like that. I think the reason, one reason why it doesn't work is what do we do with language? Um, Language within the human person is not merely a dyadic uh, stimuli response to the external world, it's actually creative. And we're actually able to use it to investigate and lead to more knowledge and to articulate ourselves, to articulate longings to other people, to communicate who we are and what we're about. It also can be a tool of violence and destruction as well. It can create those conditions. Why is that? Um, and why do we obsess over its use and the words and how they affect people? It seems to me it's straight away myths itself, if we want to call them myths, matter to human beings precisely because – they do form human communities, and they form uh, communities that last and that can be appealed to over and over again. Um, and they are revelations, I think, of who we are, of, of human nature. And, uh, you know, it's, it's truth and it's beauty and, and it's goodness. And if we, if we somehow think that we are, as, as Edmund Burke would say, the flies of the summer, uh, that's kind of how we'll live, and and the sort of these, uh, you know, I'm, um, I am the ground of truth. I am the creator of everything. I only listen to myself. I only think for myself, and that sort of business. Well, what are you gonna? How are you gonna know what to do? What are you gonna think about? Uh, what are your choices going to consist of? What's the matter upon which they're going to be based? It seems to me that's a really a debased conception of of the human person, and, and I think. I think we, I mean, I, I, will, uh, I will refrain from sort of calling groups or, you know, particular aspects of this as I see it in society. But I think there are certain conceptions of that. I think part of it's on college campus. And what, what you see coming out of that is sort of the, this mythical eye who is afraid to think and afraid to reason and afraid to investigate. And you get sort of, you know, yell Yale professors being yelled at uh, in the college yard because they sent out an email over Halloween costumes. I mean, this is, I think the the backside of a process we're in of uh, becoming a, a society no longer confident of our
0: truths and our myths. Yeah, I, I think the way I think sometimes about lately about it, Jordan Peterson's what I would yeah. think of his intellectual uh, agenda, which is to make us aware of what we've learned about ourselves in the past and not forget it. That would be the most attractive way I would describe this importance of the past. And, and, I and mean,
1: explain. It's interesting, too, to think about your question. Explain Jordan
0: Peterson uh, in the last two years. I mean, yeah, the no. eyes of Jordan Peterson, it's incredible. Yeah, by the way, it's also a, a technological phenomenon. We're not yeah, for the internet and YouTube, uh, and we never would know a thing about him. Uh, maybe technology. he'd have an article somewhere in yeah. some magazine. But
1: technology, I think, feeding uh, an existential hunger. Yeah. Uh, and an particularly amongst our young people, which I've I
0: found very encouraging. So, so I would make a distinction. This is where my libertarian and conservative sides merge. Maybe I would make a distinction between my attempt as an autonomous, self-realizing individual with free will to master myself, to understand myself, and to grow and to figure out what I ought to be doing with my life, which I'm um, 63, I'm still working on. Uh, and I think it is a lifelong project for all of us. I would say in that struggle, uh, the past is is not unimportant, that one must use the wisdom of the past and also uh, the insights about humanity. And also, you know, perhaps, this is the Peterson part, I'm not so sure about the role that archetypal stories of the past are embedded in me without my fully understanding or appreciating it. I think there is a temptation, especially among libertarians, to think that, you know, somehow I can stand on the mountaintop uh, independent of everyone when, in fact, I'm in many ways not fully of free will. I'm formed in all kinds of ways I can't appreciate by my culture, whether it's my upbringing or the country I live in or the intellectual climate I was raised in. And so one argument for to defend against the claim I was making a minute ago is to say, you just think you're independent of it. You're not, and the more you understand it, the better yeah. off uh, that you'll be. So that's the that's my libertarian side. The conservative uh, that's my conservative side. My libertarian side says, yeah, but you know, there's all these other people trying to sell me myths, sell me a story yeah. about where I came from, trying to get me to join their team, join their tribe whether it 's the enlightenment tribe or the semi enlightenment tribe and and a lot of that 's just um, it 's just dangerous it's just you know that 's an illusion to think that somehow I need to grab the right one because there isn 't a right yeah. one i I think so my punchline to this whole conversation to some extent uh, which you opened with actually if I remember correctly is humility it's it 's a lack of hubris mm. it 's a willingness to to accept the the possibility that the world's more complicated than I think it is, and that 's not an uncommon theme, on econ can talk for listeners. listeners, we'll will certainly know. No, and also
1: a theme near and dear uh, to the the founder of Liberty Fund, owing demands imperfection. No, and I, I think it's it's an insight we come to, I think, acutely now in our period at the end of, um, or, or you know, watching sort of these ideological terror regimes of the twentieth century, uh, murder tens of millions of people, hundred over one hundred fifty million people, according to one calculation, and so you you begin to be very aware of. Not only people selling you ideologies that lead nowhere, uh, but also not wanting to be a sucker. But I, I think uh, if, if we start to say, uh, I think that patriotism is for suckers, or marriage is for suckers, or religion is just sort of some sort of oppressive authoritarian thing that we don't need to think too much about, it's from the past, that's when we become uh, emasculated and sort of enter into a false emancipation. I think it's, and I, I think it's uh, very much alive in the West right now. And I think, to my mind, uh, Rough Hand explains why one of the most uh, secular and emancipated societies on the earth in Western Europe is basically dying uh, and refuses to reproduce itself from, from what all the data that I can see. Um, I think all, you know. Also, we have to ask ourselves um, when we think about. Um, Uh, who we are uh, as human persons, is what are we going to receive from other people? And I think if we acknowledge, and you made this point, if we acknowledge our own lives, people who have shaped us the most, it usually wasn't a market transaction. It was a gift. Uh, And it was a gift uh, owing out of duty or bond, obligation, and love. And if we're calling that something that can make us suckers, Um, then I think we've lost the threat as human beings. One, you know, one thing I, I, I wanted to say here, too, is, is thinking about the autonomous individual. Uh, you know, Roger Scruton, who is seen as m- maybe the dean of con- you know, contemporary conservatism, makes the point between a society that aims at autonomous individualism versus a society whose law culture um, produces autonomous individualism indirectly. And that is to say it's something that arises out of our obligations to others, that we actually see the benefit of developing ourselves. But it can't ultimately be divorced from social uh, obligations, familial obligations that we have uh, to others. And that also seems, in many respects, a danger of current trends in thinking, certain current trends in thinking. Yeah.
0: It's, that's a, I'm a big fan of it. things arising indirectly, but um – I'm not sure I what else to to say about that. Um, that's a good observation. I want to close with a point about tradition, okay? Uh, which is again a Hayekian point, but it's again I think where Hayek and conservatism uh, sort of meet, uh, perhaps. Which is, you know, said if you throw away the if you say marriage is for suckers, religions for suckers. Uh, I forget where your third one was, but. Um, mm-hmm. Patriotism. Patriotism. And I think one of the challenges of, of modernity is that some of the things that were traditions probably weren't so good. Racism would be one of them. Slavery, which we, you know was sustained for centuries mm-hmm. and, of course, still exists to some in certain places in the world. So is an evil that was not just tolerated but for a long time justified. And once you start to say, well, that tradition was probably a mistake – you get into this, uh, what I think of as a Cartesian, Descartes-based world. Well, I'm just going to see what makes sense to me, and then you lose those traditions. They don't once they're they're up for grabs. Uh, it's a very different world than the world that people were living in hundreds of years ago, and there wasn't much change, and traditions were all respected. There were some great things about that, and some really pernicious, horrible things. So now we're in a different world that's much more complicated we have to make these decisions for ourselves to some extent at least it feels like we do they're not taken for granted they're not just accepted as dogma they're up for rational examination and a lot of people are saying well yeah, maybe they're not so important maybe religion mm-hmm. maybe the family is uh it's ar- you know it's it's not a a beautiful tradition it's archaic and it's destructive and it limits the human enterprise and I think it's hard for us as uh, in the modern world to figure out w- what category to put these things in. Yeah. We're sort of – again, the word I would use is unmoored, and um, a lot of people would celebrate that. Uh, I'm The conservative side of me says I'm not so sure. There's, mm-hmm. some, there's some cost to that that I think we haven't fully reckoned with. So why don't you close and, and comment on that? You no, know, th-
1: Well, I'm, what is the, what do we mean by tradition? I don't think it's sort of a blind um, – Unthinking, uh, irrational, we've always done this, therefore we should continue to do it, and, and that may be the way certain people experience it. Um, but I in terms of those who are molding and shaping a tradition, it involves every aspect of the human person, which would also be reason, and it would and I think tradition best understood is the uh, exaltation. Of, uh, of of the best of what a people uh, are able to achieve and do, and what they find to be ways that orient and integrate uh, who they are politically, socially, uh, legally, culturally into you know sets of practices and institutions. Racism, uh, there is a tradition of racism, uh, obviously in this country, and yet if I think about you know, what do we what did we choose to exalt, what do we reason our way through? We also have this counter tradition uh, of the individual of rights and of treating people uh, you know fairly on the basis of their status as human persons and there 's a huge battle there, and I think the tradition that won wasn 't racism uh, and then you could I know you can multiply other things, but it is, I would just say tradition is not blind adherence. It's the full engagement of reason, but it's uh, it's a reason uh, and logic process that will settle uh, into certain certain practices, um, which is which is to say, but I think that's, that's inevitable uh, for finite, um, imperfect beings. We are going to settle into habits, and into certain forms of obedience and participation in a tradition, and that's I think that's largely inevitable. Even I think the most libertarian society you could think of would have traditions uh, and would have limitations and would have things it prescribes clearly. And and if it and if it chose not to do so, it would develop them uh, because in spite of itself. Um, the thing too is thinking about you know just thinking uh, uh, the question of the family, uh, where do human beings come from? Uh, how long does it take to raise them? The investment, all of this business is really, to my mind, non-negotiable. We could choose to outrun it or to sort of, you know, have, uh, you know, like certain sci- 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 sci-fi films where you sort of dismiss the family. Uh, but that, that seems to lead to dastardly results. Uh, we've had attempts at that with government policy in certain respects, and it, I don't think it's worked very well. And to me, that also speaks to the interconnection of tradition and, and human nature as being inevitable and non-negotiable,
0: I think. I guess today has been Richard Reinch. Richard, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Hey, thank you very much. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.